Why don't we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. If you are visiting with us, we make it our pattern typically to work straight through books of the Bible. We're doing something a little bit different uh, here this fall by just studying Romans 8 together, a series we're calling No Condemnation, No Separation. The chapter begins telling the Christian that because of what Jesus has done on his or her behalf, there's no condemnation that they ought to fear, and ends with this amazing statement that there's no separation that we should be worried about in Christ either. We are eternally saved, forgiven, and secure. And so this morning, we find ourselves back in Romans 8 and studying verses 12 to 17. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to know that the Bibles in the pew in front of you are there for your use, and you'll find Romans somewhere between Acts and 1 Corinthians. Uh, those are two really long books, so if you find them, uh, you're, you're pretty close to Romans. It's right in between. So Romans chapter 8, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 17 just so that we get the context, and then we'll pray and dive in. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be 
glorified with him. This is God's word. Just a brief prayer and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not left us to our own devices to figure out who you are and who we are in relationship to you and what you call us to do as your people, that you have not left us in the dark as to what you have done in order to save those who are in need of salvation, but that you've revealed it all to us in your word. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand your word and to be transformed into the image of your son, as you've told us is your will for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm convinced that as individuals in the United States in the 21st century, we are experiencing what can only be described as an identity crisis. We simply have no idea as individuals who we are. Now this came home to me with striking force uh, several years ago when I was at another church working with young professionals, that age group that is nebulously defined as being between the ages now of 19 to 36 or 20 to 36, that generation that we refer to as millennials. There was an article that came out in NPR and a study that NPR did, really a project that they did, entitled, These Are Your Millennials, America. And the kind of object or the, the substance of this project was that people were supposed to take selfies of themselves holding up signs that had words on them describing their identity. So the instructions are, we asked millennials, ages 18 to 34, as of about 2015, to take a selfie that includes their census categories for identity, race, ethnic origin, sex, or gender, and the categories they wish they could choose. The way we used to identify our identity, race, ethnic origin, gender, has now given way to the categories that we wish we could choose. Who am I? Some of the people who responded to this study identified themselves by their interest. I'm a skier or a mountain climber. Others, by their dietary choices. I am, quote, a proud vegetarian. Others, by the schools that they had graduated from, the accomplishments that they had achieved, etc. One of my absolute favorites was a young man who defined himself in about 10 to 15 different ways, only then to say finally that he is, quote, a hater of labels. Could have fooled me. We simply have no idea who we are. And we live in a culture that tells us that our identity is reduced to our business card or our bio on Instagram. Who am I? That's a question that we want to ask this morning. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you placed your faith in Jesus and received the forgiveness of sins that comes as a result of what He has done in His cross and resurrection, if you've been justified, Paul tells us that in light of all of this, Romans 8, 12-17, that you are, that I am, that we are children of God. That is your fundamental identity this morning if you know Jesus. You are a child of God, and therefore, you're also a debtor to the Spirit and an heir with Christ. This morning we have the entire Trinity described in our passage as the Lord who is our salvation. 
But I want you to know, before we even dive into the passage, we can, we can see the structure there if you have the Bible open in front of you. Verses 12 and 13, Paul discusses our identity as a debtor. Verses 14 and 15, as a child. And then even into 16 and then 17, as heirs of God with Christ. The primary, the fundamental identity marker that everything flows out of this morning is that if I believe in Jesus, I am now a child of God. I've been adopted into his family eternally. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we begin to make our way through this passage because the first thing that we want to look at this morning is that we are, in Christ, debtors to the Spirit. Verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, So then, here's an application. Here are the implications of everything that he said in verses 1 to 11. Isn't it wonderful when the Bible gives you its own application. So then, because of this, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For or because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are debtors, Paul says, by implication to the Spirit. You remember from last week that when Paul speaks of the flesh, He's talking about everything natural in us, everything that's inclined to oppose God and to sin against God. It's who we are before we are uh, changed by the Spirit and through the Gospel. Paul says, because we have been brought out of death and into life, or in the language of verse 2, since the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, we are now debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now we've said before that these two realms, flesh on the one hand, being opposed to God, spirit on the next, being dwelled by God's spirit and now desiring to obey, these are not realms that we can transfer back and forth from. We are either in the flesh or in the spirit. We are either unregenerate or regenerate. But the fact of the matter is that as those who have lived for so long in the flesh, even when we're brought to life, we experience the sort of ongoing Stockholm Syndrome where the flesh, our old master, ignites our affections and we're desirous of doing those things that are against the law of God and against the character of God. And so we struggle with this natural inclination to feed to entertain, and to flourish in the realm of the flesh. We still sin. Paul says, we are now no longer debtors, however, to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, that word debtor carries a connotation here in English that really isn't there in the original language. The, the idea here is obligation. One of the definitions of this word is one who is under obligation in a moral or a social sense. So the CSB translates, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We once were obligated to the flesh. Before we met Jesus and were transformed by Jesus, we lived under an ongoing obligation to do that which was fleshly. Yesterday I was driving home from Akron and I heard on the radio an advertisement for a club in Canton, Ohio. 
they were advertising something entitled Sin Night, which was Sunday nights. And don't you know, they were promoting sin. And what was so striking about that isn't my desire to judge those who are outside of Christ, but what was so striking about that was it wasn't simply a nonchalant attitude towards sin. It was a promotion of, a celebration of sin that characterizes those who are in the flesh. But now having been born again, regenerated, having trusted in Jesus, Paul says we are no longer under any obligation to the flesh. We can choose not to sin. That's wonderful news. Now what comes on the heels of this identity marker as a debtor to the Spirit rather than to the flesh by implication is a dire warning in verse 13. Let's not miss this. For, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now I thought on the one hand that the Spirit of life had set me free from the law of sin and death. That's grace. But now, on this hand, Paul is telling me that if I live according to the flesh, I will die. Why? It sounds like the two things contradict. But what Paul is saying is, if in fact the Spirit dwells in you, and if you're a Christian, He does, you will, by necessity, not live according to the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh and those who die are those outside of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones said very strikingly, very plainly, if you have no desire for holiness, I cannot tell you that you are a Christian. Look at what Paul says. We do not have obligation to live according to the flesh, but if by the Spirit, verse 13, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now notice, Paul does not say manage the deeds of the body. He does not say simply confess the deeds of the body. He says, if you put them to death. There's an old Puritan word for this called mortification, killing our sin. Now, historically in the church, this has not been anything controversial. The idea that daily dealing with my own personal sin is a necessary result of having believed in Jesus. So, for instance, the London Baptist Confession, written in 1689, or the Westminster Confession, same exact wording, quote, this sanctification, growing in the likeness of Jesus, is throughout the whole person, yet imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnants of corruption or the flesh in every part, wherefrom, listen to this, arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. There's a war, they say. John Owen, writing in his famous uh, work, The Mortification of Sin, asked the question, do you mortify? Do you put your sin to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Here it is, summary of Romans 8.13. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. John Murray, old professor at Princeton Seminary, the believer's once-for-all death to the law of sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him or her to do so. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here we have it, loved ones. Spirit-filled life is by definition and necessarily a life of holiness. 
If I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit, if in fact I'm a child of God, my life will be characterized by an unmistakable holiness. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does this mean in practice? There are two ways, I think, that we can misunderstand grace and get it all wrong. On the one hand, we can be legalists. That's the mentality that God's grace isn't sufficient to put me in a right relationship with the Lord. So I have to earn my keep by obeying, by my obedience. On the other hand, there's licentiousness, which is a big way, big word of saying, listen, because of God's grace, I can do whatever I want now. I've been given a blank check. I've got to get out of jail free card. I've got fire insurance. What does it matter? You see how Paul's language here absolutely obliterates both. There could be no legalism because I need to kill the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And there could be no licentiousness because I am called to kill the deeds of the body. You know, I can remember being small, and maybe some of you can remember this as well, but it seemed like every birthday, uh, every one of my parents' birthdays or Christmas, I was given money by them to purchase their gifts. And not only that, but then... I, was, I didn't have a, a, a license. I was like 12, 13 years old. They would drive me to the mall in their car with their money to buy them their gifts. Now, I had to go into the mall. I had to do the shopping. I had to pick something out. I had to pay for it. But it was really all of them. Again, their money, their car, their power, their strength. If by the Spirit, Paul says, given to you freely by grace, purchased for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. No legalism, no licentiousness. How does this work? I think for many of us, we think about killing sin or dealing with sin simply by confessing and repenting in the moment of an act of sinfulness. So if I'm speaking for myself, let's take anger. Lord, I got angry again. Please forgive me. See, what Paul is saying here is that that's not enough. What we're, what we're trying to do is allow the Holy Spirit, like a master gardener, to uproot the weeds in our heart and then to plant things that are pleasing to Him. It's not simply enough to say, Lord, I got angry again. It's, Lord, I am an angry person. Would you by your spirit uproot anger and implant gentleness and compassion and patience and kindness? Putting to death that which is fleshly and causing what is spiritual to live. The spiritual life, the life of the person who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit is by definition a holy life. And all of this flows from our identity as children of God. Look again with me at the text at verse 14. There is a natural outworking. Why is it that if I put to death the deeds of the body, I will live? Is it because I'm working hard? Is it because I'm good at doing this religious thing? No. Verse 14, all who are led, Paul says, by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Simply stated, what Paul's saying here is my mortification gives evidence of my adoption. When I am adopted into God's family, I will begin to look like a member of God's family. 
It used to be my dad would come to me you know, a moment of instruction and he would say, you're a Wilmer. And Wilmers don't do that. I, be, I didn't have to earn my right as a Wilmer, but bearing the family name, there was an expectation for how to carry myself. Paul says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You're God's children. Therefore, we bear the family resemblance. Now, to be led by the Spirit here does not simply mean that God gives us direction about what His will is for our lives or where we're to work or who we're to marry. The parallel here is the text that Amy read for us in Galatians 5. All who are led by the Spirit of God are crucifying the flesh and living to the Spirit. Lust and orgies and anger and dissensions are put away. And love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, those sorts of things are flourishing. To be led by the Spirit is as if He has taken the reins of our lives as to be dominated, controlled, constrained by the Spirit of God as He makes us look more and more like Jesus. All, Paul says, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you are killing sin, if you have a desire to look like Jesus, Paul says, good news. You're in the family. Undeniably, objectively, if you have that desire, you are in the family. Why, verse 15? Because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's where He found you. That's where grace found you enslaved. He found you in a prison of bound will, unable to please God, as Paul says earlier in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Enslaved and imprisoned with an inability to please God, obey God, do what the law says from the heart. That's where He found you. And for the person who lives in that realm, the only way apart from Hallmark sort of, you know, greeting card spirituality, the only way someone can view God who lives in that realm is through fear. A fearful expectation of judgment. But look at what Paul says. How does the believer who has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who is now given this new ability, this new desire to live a holy life, how does that person relate to the Father as Father? You have received, Paul says, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is the fundamental, primary identity for the person who follows Jesus. I can remember several years ago when Kelly and I were first praying about and thinking about the possibility of adopting a child. You watch all of these videos of, of organizations promoting themselves and the services that they provide. And there was one in particular that just struck me and resonated with me so deeply because there was this video of these children playing on a playground with their adoptive parents. And one of the fathers uh, of, of one of the children was giving his testimony of his adoption story. And he, he picks up his, his, his young little boy and is holding him in his arms. And the little boy looks at him and says, Hi, Daddy. And the man just began to well up with tears, and he says, there's nothing better than when they finally begin to call you Daddy. When they finally understand that, that you belong to them, and they belong to you, and it's just 
natural for them to say, Father, Daddy. Paul says if you have the Holy Spirit, the fact that you can cry by this absolutely amazing change of identity, Daddy, Father, when you can say that with integrity, there is absolutely nothing like it. You're a child of God if you've believed in Jesus. And in light of that, you're a debtor to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. But thirdly and finally, you're also an heir with Christ. I want you to understand this for a moment. Very often, very well-intentioned people who speak about the notion of adoption in our culture will say something along these lines. Well, you've adopted a child, are you going to have a child of your own? No, 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 no. The adopted child is a child of, that, of their own. And I want you to notice here the glory that the Father has bestowed freely by His grace on His adopted children. There is, look at this, there is no child of my own Jesus and then my adopted children on the side. Rather, Paul says, we are heirs with Christ. That the Father has, in effect, written His believing children into His will. Not that He's going to die, but that there's an inheritance that awaits every boy or girl, every man or woman who trusts in Jesus. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs, co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In the midst of all of our struggles against sin, in the midst of this putting to death the deeds of the body and causing those uh, things that please the Spirit to live, in the midst of all of that, the Spirit is testifying, whispering, you're a son or daughter. In the midst of all of the sufferings here of verse 17, real tragedy and loss and pain, both physical and spiritual, the Spirit is whispering, you're a son or daughter. You know, when, I, when Kelly and I adopted Henry, we had this amazing moment where you, you go into a courtroom and you appear before a judge and the judge is going to make a legal declaration. He's going to sign paperwork to say, this child's yours. The inheritance is theirs. They've got your last name. If you guys should get divorced, there's, you know, child support is going to... The child's yours. But then there is this sort of subjective thing that Tony Morita calls the spirit of sonship, where no loving home brings children into it and then just sort of says, okay, fend for yourself. There are those tender moments when you pull your child on your lap and you look at him and you say, I love you. There's the provision of food and clothing and shelter and warmth in the home. There's the necessary reality of discipline as you try and raise a little boy or girl in the way that they should go. There's a subjective sort of sense, a spirit of adoption. The Spirit whispers to us that you are the children of God. This is a stretching thought for someone who tends to be more rationalistic like myself, but 
Doug Moo even says, if some Christians err in basing their assurance of salvation on feelings alone, which we don't want to do, many others err in basing it on facts and arguments alone, which many of us tend to do. Indeed, what Paul says here calls into question whether one can have a genuine experience of God's spirit of adoption without its affecting the emotions. For those quiet moments where we do sing, overcome with joy, in the midst of affliction and temptation when we know things are not well, but I am a child of God. And Paul says, if we are His children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That everything that God owns one day is bequeathed, given by inheritance to His children. And not to Christ alone, but to all of His children. It was purchased for us by Jesus, but it's given to all of His children. Do you have any idea what kind of inheritance awaits you? Earlier in Romans, in chapter 4, in verse 13, Paul is talking about the promises made to Abraham. Now listen carefully. Paul says, Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians, is Jesus and all who believe in Jesus. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. The world. Not just a little slab of land in Israel. The world. It's all his. This is the inheritance that awaits the people of God. Everything. Paul says later that, that everything, that, that Christ is of God and, and all that is God's is yours and it all belongs to you. If you are in Christ. If you are His child. You no longer Await the fearful, fearful prospect of judgment. But you await this reception of an inheritance that can never be taken from you. Provided, Paul says, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That is simply to say all those who are the rightful sons and daughters by adoption of the Lord God Almighty will look like the Son, Jesus, who suffered for their sins on the cross, paying the penalty that they deserve, and then rising to glorious life, now seated at the right hand of the Father. There is a pathway that moves through suffering to glory. See, when you realize this, I mean, when you really start to frame out your existence in this way, who am I? Your business card, your Instagram bio cannot bear the weight of your soul. Your meager achievements in this life cannot bear the weight of your soul. The only identity marker that will truly ever bear the weight of your soul is that I am, by faith in Jesus, a child of the living 
God. Because you know what that means? That means that you are fully known. But it also means that you are fully loved. That there are no mysteries. There are no secrets. He knows it all. And yet He loves you. And now by His Spirit, He's changing you incrementally. Two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes one step forward, two steps back. But the end result for the person who's believing in Jesus is holiness by the Spirit. We are children of God. Therefore, we are debtors to the Spirit and heirs with Christ. And in light of all of that, man, the sufferings of this life, they pale in comparison. That's where Paul goes next, verse 18. I'll tell you, I know a guy who recently ran a marathon. At the end of the marathon, he'll tell you, he wanted to quit the entire time. It's torturous. But then he'll tell you, the way his son looked at him at the end, that look of, that's my dad. That look of joy and glory made it all worth it. And so, we suffer so that when that day comes, there's going to be a look on the Father's eyes that says, that's my boy. That's my girl. Receive your inheritance. It's all yours. Who am I? We sang together, it's who I am. I'm loved by you. You're a good, good father. What does that mean? It means my soul rests in that identity. And being secure in that identity, I'm going to kill sin as the Spirit helps me. And I'm going to remember that no matter what it looks like in this life, in the next there awaits me an inheritance that's unperishable, unfading, undefiled, that no one can ever take from me. Far more than a song. Far more than a mantra. If I'm in Christ, I'm a child of the living God. So who are you? Only you can answer that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we pause just for a moment and park there. And we can come to you as a father. that You've loved us, that You've sent Your Son who is so precious to You to live and die and rise again in our place to show just how much You love Your people. We marvel that You could call us so many things. We could be believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus. We could be justified sinners, all those things are true, but you go even further. And you call us your sons and daughters. You indeed are a good, good Father, and so we pray that as you fill us with your Spirit, that we would be serious about the business of 
putting to death the deeds of the body, that we would show how much we love you by longing to be like you, to be conformed into the image of our, our brother Jesus, as our Lord and our Savior. And that you would help us to remember that as your children, you have given us this tremendous inheritance. We get the world. We get, we get it all. A new heavens and a new earth. A place where righteousness dwells and we see you face to face. And we pray that that would be the thing that just stirs our heart and our affections in the midst of suffering and trial and temptation to keep going one foot in front of the next. Lord, you have loved us so much. And as a result, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.